Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I am your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So full disclosure, I'm not feeling well. My voice is a little off. I have kind of a stuffly situation going on. I don't know what I might have. I don't seem to have the same symptoms as as COVID, but I've been quarantining regardless. Uh, My energy levels are all over the place, so that might make this come across like I am lacking energy while I'm doing this episode, but this is the recording time that I have available and I don't want to miss any days on this. So uh, you kind of get what you get with this one. Um, Hopefully we can make it through this together. First and foremost, just kind of a quick update. I have had the opportunity. Well, actually my, I've had the opportunity to speak with, uh, with my ex when, when we first, when I first split things off, if, if you aren't aware, last episode, I talked about having, uh, ended a relationship with, with my significant other who'd been together for about a year and what a little over a year, the initial breakup was very, it happened a little fast for her, uh, for me as well, but she had asked if I would be willing to come over and talk with her so that she would have an opportunity to have her say she didn't feel like she was able to, to do that the last time we had interacted because she just wasn't really able to process everything. So we, we met, I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was very reasonable. I still felt that my decision was correct. Um, we met, we talked and it was extremely healthy. You know, I don't think that we both fully see what the other person sees, but I think at the end of it, we both left on fairly good terms. I came away with a lot of stuff I feel like I need to work on. She came away, I hope, feeling the same way. Either either way, the reason why I even want to bring this up is not really just to kind of keep indulging my personal dramas that occur, but how they apply to my recovery, how how they apply to how different of a person I am. You know, we were able to have a healthy conversation about our split up and leave in a healthy way. I could leave knowing that during the relationship, while there was things that I I obviously needed to work on, uh, especially relating to uh, different events that occurred, I was able, I am able to walk away feeling like I, I did give the very best I could to that relationship at the time. I was, I was communicative. I was responsible. I was respectful. I was a good partner. I was um, a good role model to her son. I participated. I was honest and how that might relate to my recovery is that I, I don't have many of those instances in my life where I can say that. I can look back at my previous relationships and see that that wasn't always the case, especially in my drinking, you know, and sometimes in my recovery. So there's a lot of growth here for me. And it really came from giving myself some time between relationships, giving her uh, the opportunity to present herself as she is and not hold her to some sort of a, a prejudgment based on, you know, the ex that came before her or any of the people that I had dated in the past. Being able to trust my feelings, being able to, be, you know, objectively look at the situation for the most part, um, being willing to be honest with myself in the moment as well. And see, you know, even though it felt sudden that I saw it, see that I was losing myself and that I was falling back on some codependent habits that were slowly building up. They weren't happening all at once. And I think that's why it kind of took me off guard, but they were happening and I was not okay with that. I was not willing to sacrifice 
the work I had done to save what I feel like was not a relationship that was going to work. So that's a lot of growth for me. You know, like I said before, I I would have usually taken the easy path and just stayed until it destroyed itself. And, you know, there were times where I would stay in the hopes that they would just break it off with me because that would be easier because I was a coward like that. And I wasn't. I faced the music. I allowed her to say the things that she needed to say, even if I didn't like hearing some of them. And even if I didn't agree with them, we hugged a lot of crying, both, both people crying, some promises, you know, nothing. I told her very clearly that if anything was going to change between us, it had to change without our relationship on the table. It had to be for us. It had to be the, for the better of us. And if things got to a better place and it were appropriate that we could consider being friends and see how that goes because she is a good person. She's not a terrible person. She just, we weren't a good fit, but I didn't want to leave anything on the table. I didn't want to fill, fill the void with false hope. So I made it very clear that it was ended and it was over and that we were going to have to take some time. That's just the only way these things work is to take time. And the emptiness there is going to be the hardest part for both of us. I did enjoy the surface level time that we spent together. And I enjoyed some of the deeper things, even though I felt some of that was lacking. It's going to be hard not sharing that space with someone, to be honest. I mean, that is an, an easy thing for somebody like me is to feel lonely. And I feel that void with relationships. I don't feel that void by being more socially active with my friends. I feel that void with a relationship because that person is always there. There's always somebody communicating with me when I'm in those relationships. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's what this was because I don't feel like I was seeking a relationship at the time, but my lack of social interaction would rely heavily on our relationship to, to sort of solve that. You know, I was okay not visiting my friends as much because I was spending my time with her and her son, uh, even though at, at, after a while that did create kind of this feeling of loneliness itself, a different kind of loneliness. But either way, uh, the relationship ended on as good a terms as something like that could. I feel good. I don't feel happy because I'm a little sad. I'm sad about the loss of it. I'm going to grieve this, but I feel good. I made the right choice, I think. I stood by that choice. I didn't compromise who I was. I didn't manipulate the situation or do anything like I used to do. Uh, and I didn't have to think about that. This was just a how I was situation. And I really, I need to take some time to really appreciate that about myself. Seeing that work I have done over the years on something that was so critical to who I felt I was, my relationship status, people I was with, previous relationships, that was that's what did the most damage to me. To see real growth there uh, means a lot. It's really important, and I'm going to take some time and really appreciate that. I'm also going to take some time to just figure out what the fuck I want to do. Uh, this podcast is definitely something I am not going to stop doing. And um, for now, that's going to be my focus and we'll see what I can fit in around that. But a part of that means recording when I'm feeling a little under the weather. So with that being said, uh, this is going to be kind of a shorter chapter. It is the family afterwards. I'm going to be honest of all the chapters that I have read. This one, I feel like I'm reading for the first time, even though I know I've read it multiple times. Um, there's nothing that sticks out when I even know the title, like two, I, all, all the other chapters so far, I can kind of pinpoint some aspects of it, but this one, I think for the most part, both we're going to be going through this together for the first time, even though it is definitely not my first time. So that chapter is going to be coming up before that. We're going to be reading from the daily stoic, October 19th, good habits drive out bad habits. 
Since habit is such a powerful influence and we're used to pursuing our impulses to gain and avoid outside our own choice, we should set a contrary habit against that. And where appearances are really slippery, use the counterforce of our training. Epictetus Discourses 3.12.6 When a dog is barking loudly because someone is at the door, the worst thing you can do is yell. To the dog, it's like you're barking too. When a dog is running away, it's not helpful to chase it. Again, now it's like you're both running. A better option in both scenarios is to give the dog something else to do. Tell it to sit. Tell it to go to its bed or kennel. Run in the other direction. Break the pattern. Interrupt the negative impulse. The same goes for us. When a bad habit reveals itself, counteract it with a commitment to a contrary virtue. For instance, let's say you find yourself procrastinating today. Don't dig in and fight it. Get up and take a walk to clear your head and reset instead. If you find yourself saying something negative or nasty, don't kick yourself. Add something positive and nice to qualify the remark. Oppose established habits and use the counterforce of training to get traction and make progress. If you find yourself cutting corners during a workout or on a project, say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to go even further or do, do even better. Good habits have the power to drive out bad habits, and habits are easy to pick up, as we all know. You know, I really like almost anything that has to do with habits and breaking habits and the way that our body and our brains work when it comes to the things that are habitual. You know, it's, it's a very interesting component of the human process that when you kind of nerd out on it, you can see that there are ways to completely hack that aspect of yourself. And when I say hack, I mean, you know, there's life hacks and that whole, it's kind of an overused term. But in this instance, it's really an, an honest thing. And while I haven't gone down the entire, you know, the road of, of peer-reviewed research and, and all that, I, I have been very interested in habit. For me, that initial interest came when during blackouts, I would still do things that were habit-based, even though I was basically in a, in a state of amnesia. I would, I would still remember to like do different things in my households or whatever, whatever it was, like put the lid down when I went to the bathroom, things I had kind of programmed in my head and later started learning more about how to build healthy habits in my life learned that people with like dementia have a, a the reason why habit is so important to people that have dementia is that it is stored in a different section of our brain it's a different kind of memory it's a different kind of a a thing it's a cognitive type of event that occurs and when you build bad habits or good habits um there's there's just a lot of interesting things that happen and what this book what this book just kind of said is while it's specifically looking at bad habits and making sure that we're doing things to break those bad habits, what's not really mentioning is that for some reason, for me personally, and maybe for a lot of people, and what I've read in, in some of the things I've learned about habits, is bad, bad habits seem to be a lot easier to make. Not Our brain doesn't really know the difference between a bad or a good habit, but when it comes to things like procrastinating, when it comes to things like looking at Facebook, looking at doing anything that is kind of an escape from a feeling or escape from a form of anxiety, which for the most part is what would be considered a bad habit. They're very easy to create because the uh, feeling of that removal, the escape is almost instantaneous and it feels really good. The, hab the habits that are hardest to make, like exercising more, doing things to change the kind of suffering that you have in your life are harder to make. Because it's sort of an overcoming of something, um, usually a feeling of, of kind of safety, right? So as an example, like I said, with exercise, exercising doesn't feel good. 
at first. It really doesn't. I, I, I don't care who you are. That feeling, the pain and the, the out of breath feeling and even the psychological, like, I can't believe I can't do more push-ups. I can't believe I can't run as far. I can't believe walking is so hard. It's hard to re- reward that with anything more than just positive reinforcement that it's going to get easier, etc. The habit of sitting down because it feels good doesn't need to be reinforced. The reinforcement happens with the action of sitting. Psychologically, we don't really have to tell ourselves anything. I don't have to tell myself that uh, it feels better to just sit on my ass and not do anything. Over time, that changes, right? But it starts out easy for me. Like, man, I've had a hard day. I can, I can have a, I can relax a little bit and just kind of hang out on my phone. And then over time, it becomes this thing that I just fucking do. And it's almost out of nowhere that these habits like that are built for me. To be quite honest, it takes really hard work to break bad habits and to create good ones. And it almost takes no effort at all to allow bad habits to slowly uh, form and become overwhelming and powerful, which sort of lines up with the idea that it takes hard work to be happy and it's very easy to be unhappy. It doesn't take any effort at all to be unhappy, but it takes a lot of work. And the people that put in the work, even though it does get easier over time, have to constantly put in that work. It seems that way with good habits. It took me two years to get into the actual habit where fitness was something that I just did. And it took a month, basically, uh, to break that habit to where I haven't worked out in a year and a half and haven't considered it. Like I have kind of in the back of my head thought, man, I need to get back into shape of some kind because I'm getting older and I can feel it and I just need to be a little bit better about exercise. But now it's gotten back to that point of like, I, I, I can have those conversations with myself and make no effort into changing those habits. So it does take work. It takes constant work. It takes constant effort. That, that being said, it's not an impossible thing. It can take small bits of effort, small things to change major habits. And when it says basically to to use better language when you're talking about those things is is that's where that comes in you know if you have a bad habit like i'll use myself an example i have a bad habit of going to bed and and going through uh tiktok or whatever bullshit social media garbage i'm now addicted to and i'll do that for fucking an hour or two and just get completely lost in it and have and walk away with basically no value from it at all outside of that feeling of escape and it be kind of becoming an addictive kind of a habit last night i made the effort not to do that to put the phone down i gave myself a half hour time limit i went over that time limit by 15 minutes but i did put the phone down the importance is to focus on the fact that I made the effort, I put the phone down, not to focus on the fact that I didn't do it until 15 minutes. Not to say, fuck man, you can't even do that. Like it would be worthless to me, less than worthless. It'd be, it, it would just be damaging to me to give myself a hard time about not fully and successfully meeting that goal. Habits are very uh, dangerous in that way. It's easy to set really big goals and to feel like you have to meet them all at once. You know, alcohol and drinking was that way. Uh, Quitting it was, you know, also. That's why I think it's important when people come into sobriety, just the focus on staying sober at first. Just make it to a meeting or whatever form of recovery you've chosen and don't drink today. That's where the one day at a time thing, I think, kind of plays in and is a very powerful, impactful thing. It's a huge habit to change uh, to no longer drink. You're changing probably, for me, it was changing literally every aspect of my life. And I had to take that slow. I had to reinforce that with positive language. I had to look at the small increments. You know, I've heard people say they measure it by hours and not even days. Just stay sober an hour. 
And what also is important is, yeah, some people relapse. I've relapsed multiple times before getting sober this last time. I relapsed for 10 years. And what would be the purpose of getting stuck on that and putting myself down for that? What would be the purpose of, of shitting all over that? I wouldn't do that to my friend. So I really like that reading. I think it's an important thing. I think it was something that I needed to hear right now because there are some habits that now I have all the time in the world and I have no excuses uh, not to really uh, look at. And yeah, I'm sure that might apply for other people, but speaking for myself, you know, this is an instance where I need to take my own advice. Um, this podcast is a habit for me. It's become one. Like, you know, I, I know I have a certain amount of time that I, I need to get a, an episode recorded and uh, I don't allow myself to do other things to distract myself from that responsibility. I just get it done. That's why I'm doing it while I'm sick. That's why I'm doing it while my, uh, my roommate is having a, uh, college high school drumming band in the fucking kitchen right now. I don't know what the hell he does down there. Uh, but you know, that's just habits. Habits are literally life-changing. And they should not be something that are just sort of casually set aside. Like, oh, I know I have a bad habit. No, really, really look at that. Right, this is a bad habit. What can I do to change it? This is a good habit. What can I do to reinforce it? How can I make it a better habit? Things like that. There's a lot to think about there. All right. So getting into the reading. This is the family afterwards. This is on pages 122. Goes to 135. I'm pretty sure I can get this all into one episode. And it starts out like this. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who's, who is recovering. Man, the language in this thing <sighs> never ceases to crack me up. Perhaps they created the impression that he is too wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude toward himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. So something of interest that I really started kind of thinking about now that I'm, you know, that I've just recently had a breakup and I'm single again in this program, the literature doesn't really support the notion or the concept that people that come into it don't have a family. I mean, there's two full chapters completely associated with the idea that you're married, that you, your wife does wifely duties and that you have kids. I know how common uh, and how societally pressured that was back in the day, but that's not really the case now. And I don't think it's like a failing of anything that people are maybe now reconsidering being in committed lifelong relationships with people. I think it's more just an adjustment to, you know, our life, how things are going. You know, the, the societies do that. They change their perspective on those kinds of requirements. So with that being said, I know that a lot of the last two episodes have really dealt with, you know, relationships and that's not everybody's issues. So I hope that you're able to kind of you know, look at this in another perspective. While this might not apply to you, because maybe you are somebody that hasn't really felt the pressure of being in a relationship or aren't trying to save a marriage or whatever that might be, look at this from the perspective of the, this, these things, while some of the, the codec is outdated, might be able to help you help someone else. It might give you a perspective on someone who is currently trying to save a family and help them understand that you shouldn't be in this specifically for the matter of saving a marriage and give them some insight into how they can apply this in a way 
that, you know, does put them in a position where they can work on those things, even if you aren't in that position. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, if you're having a hard time looking at this from the the perspective of this applies to me, look at it from a perspective of how can I apply this to someone else? And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he could take from the family life rather than give? Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. A doctor said to us years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. The entire family is, to some extent, ill. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> I was raised in a family of alcoholics and drug addicts, and that fucking definitely made me neurotic. Um, I have taken ownership of what I can over the years, but, you know, there is a lot of damage done to a small child in that environment. Uh, and it's not a matter of it just simply making me neurotic. Like, it just, that's why ACA is such an important thing. If you have not considered adult children of alcoholics, uh, consider it. If you have friends that maybe were raised by alcoholics, you know, through this work, you start learning other people's stories. Once people find out you're sober, they start sharing stuff with you. Well, my dad was an alcoholic or my mom was an alcoholic. There, there's a program, Adult Children of Alcoholics. It sounds like it's kind of an odd name. It doesn't. The requirement for you to be um, to not drink isn't there. It, it is just the requirement that you want to learn how to be your own person. And if you were raised to be someone else's caregiver, and you were raised in an environment that didn't allow you to that you basically had to adult yourself and parent yourself. And so you were never really given the opportunity to be a child, therefore creating an environment where you have a lot of unhealthy habits, as I, you know, kind of pulled that from today's topic earlier, it gives you tools, you know, how to self-soothe, how to, how to not be sensitive as sensitive, how to, how to be sensitive in a different way, how to be aware of yourself and how to, how to really just give yourself the room to, to be a fucking person and not be the adult or not be the child. You don't know if that makes sense. Uh, great. But it, it is great for people who, who are alcoholics, who were raised by alcoholics or raised even in an environment where you just had to be your own adult. Uh, but it's also really good for people like in this instance, maybe the, maybe the, the child in question is 17 or 18 or 20 years old or whatever, whatever age that might be. Just because they're older doesn't mean that they weren't in that environment for a long period of time or that, you know, that, that you can't help them in some way. That is something to suggest. Al-Anon isn't always the best fit for these kinds of situations. Sometimes the best fit is, is ACA. So that's another option. I, I definitely um, suggest anybody listening to just check it out. Go to a couple of the meetings, just see how it goes. There are secular versions of them, though the, the non-secular don't tend to get super God heavy. But anyways, uh, back to the reading. Let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Each in his turn may be foot sore and may straggle. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypaths down which they may wander and lose their way. Suppose we tell you of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, then converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years, and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. God, they believe, almost owes this re uh, recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the, fa the house has spent years in pulling down the structure of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. 
Though the old buildings will be eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structure will take years to complete. There is no time limit. That's a very important thing. As going into this, if you are the alcoholic who has damaged your family reputation, reputation it's just is going to take time. And living in the expectation that your good deeds will be met with some kind of reward and having a measure of what that reward will be is only going to be like it's kind of a recipe for for you know disaster. So it is always important, and I've said it plenty of times in this this podcast, and it'll be something I'll probably always repeat. This not only needs to be done for yourself, but it needs to be done under the motivation that you aren't going to get anything but healthy from it. You're not going to get anything but a clearer mind, the ability to, to do better. You're not going to get anything back. You're not going to get your friends back. You're not going to get your family back. You have to do it with the idea that that's a possibility. It doesn't mean that you're failing at the program. It doesn't mean that you're not doing something right. Some damages just cannot be erased. Some things cannot be forgiven. But what it means is you're not creating any new wreckage. You're not going out into the world and and creating new people that are going to leave you in a position of feeling left because of your actions. That's what this is really all about. Yes, obviously. I'm hopeful, personally, that, you know, my friends forgive me for things that I've done. But if I leave it an opportunity for... For me to feel like that's the expectation, well, I've done these things, so now you you should re, you know forgive me, and they don't forgive me. Now I'm in a position where I, I can feel a certain kind of way, and it could lead to me drinking. And that's what needs to be removed is that expectation. We're not doing this for other people. That's what that kind of means. It, it means other things, but it really also means that I'm not doing it for my mom who, who may have passed away, but I'm not doing it for the image of my mom. I'm not doing it for my dad. I'm not doing it for my grandparents or my, my daughter. I'm doing it for me, period. And it's very important that you kind of live in that moment. It sounds selfish. It seems unreasonable. But I, I promise you, living in that kind of, for me, living in that has been the healthiest I've ever been. Because now when do when things do happen in a certain kind of way, it's just met with pure gratitude and thankfulness and joy. It's not met with like, well, of course, and finally, and I deserve this. I, I respect every moment of any instance I get some kind of positive response to my now current situation. Um, and that comes from that kind of mindset of, I'm not doing this for that. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it to be healthier and and safer. I'm doing it for my community in a way, you know, because I don't want to wreak any more havoc. And I am doing it for my family in a way that I'm not creating any new wreckage, but not for the expectation that they're going to start suddenly treating me any differently. And I think that does does do a lot of people damage to to live in that. Well, I did this and my family didn't come back. Yeah, that can happen. It can. And that just has to be okay. Back to the reading. Father knows he is to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he shouldn't be reproached. Perhaps he will never have much money again. But the wise family will admire him for what he's trying to be, rather than for what he is trying to get. Now and then the family will be plagued by specters from the past, for the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effort that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently is almost the only one. 
This painful past may be of infinite value to our families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not, and when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only willing, only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought, in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Yeah, so basically, I mean, it's just it's just sort of doubling down. This this whole process isn't a selfish endeavor for you to just claim this pinnacle of sobriety, win back your family and friends, bring back your fortune, reverse everything back to better than zero, despite anything that may have happened in your past, and then that's it. You're done. It's to it's to proceed to give this to the next person and to and to make sure that you're still giving back you know, to the community. You don't have to even give back to AA. Maybe you leave this thing, but still go out and live, live these principles. That's giving back even just a very small amount to that community. It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgive each other and drew close together. The, mira the miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then, under one provocation or another, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains, and they hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be rewon. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. And this is where I'm going to disagree. It just got done saying a couple pages before this, or a page and a half or whatever, that the idea isn't about forgetfulness. I do think that if there are still those situations, maybe you were unfaithful or there's trust issues or there's major issues, but the couple has decided that they want to actually work through these things, and that's where a counselor comes in. Really work through these things. Don't make it like a tool to, you know, like I said, cast about and make new arguments about or, uh, you know, just sort of coalesce into these major problems because they were never actually dealt. Actually work through them. Uh, don't just forget about them. And that's what it's basically telling you to do now, all of a sudden, which I think is kind of weird. Uh, there is a lot of stuff that people are going to have to work through. And the biggest key to any relationship is communication. And that means if somebody's hurt, they explore that hurt. The other person needs to allow that. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other's uh, alcoholic troubles. This is a condition which, in ordinary life, would produce untold grief. There might be scandalous gossip, laughter at expense of other people, and a tendency to take advantage of intimate information. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, among us, these are rare occurrences. We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. Another principle we observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure we would approve, he or she would approve. We find it better when possible to stick to our own stories. A man may crit uh, criticize to laugh at himself, and it will affect others favorably, but criticism or ridicule coming from other often produces the contrary effect. Yeah, basically what stays in a meeting, what happens in a meeting stays in a meeting, and it should. 
if you find out that people are gossiping in a meeting, which is good, of course, I mean, there's there's fucking all kinds of personalities that are going to be going to meetings, then that needs to be addressed. I don't really care what kind of dynamic that is. Oh, we don't want to see conflict. I have addressed those when I was at another clubhouse before uh, finding my way to like more permanent secular recovery. Uh, my girlfriend had gotten involved in some drama. Uh, at the time, because that's just the kind of personality that she was. And it, it's turned into this sort of like thing. We found out one of the people there, it wasn't my girlfriend, was a gossiper. And she was taking people's privileged information that it was happening in the meetings. And she was talking about it outside of the meeting. And she was sharing that. She was sharing that in a way that was harmful to people. And that, this is where, yes, Tradition 3 states that if you have a desire to quit drinking, then you can attend an AA meeting and you can't be barred from that. But if if you are causing harm and you're no longer respecting the safety of the people that are there, then yeah, you could be removed. That's that's that what that's what comes first. You, the safety of the people in that room. If you're using information that's inside those meetings to harm people and breaking that anonymity, yes, you should be removed. At first, nobody wanted to make a big deal out of it. People didn't want to create waves and blah 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 blah. And I'm sorry I don't stand for that. I don't stand I am I am not going to allow one person to create an, a meeting space that is no longer safe for people to to be in that's what this the meetings are for is for people to feel safe and share and and be a part of the group and to be able to say things that they need to say and if somebody's invalidating that and violating that privacy and breaking anonymity and and creating issues because they're fucking whatever their shit they're not dealing with then they can deal with that somewhere else if a newcomer comes to a meeting and shares something really intimate and someone else is using that information to harm them, I, I don't fucking care. They need to go. They need to go. That's creating way more harm for the benefit of what? To just allow that person there. So sorry about that tangent, but it is important. The safety of meetings and, and creating those spaces for people doesn't really get talked about often, but I have seen clubhouses try to like stay out of things too much. Like there are instances where leadership of some kind needs to step in the GSR, whoever is a representative of the meeting, the people holding the business meeting, whoever, whatever people need to come to they, they, shit needs to happen. And the reason why even that's important is because this also applies to predatory behavior, men who are making women feel uncomfortable uh, situations where maybe people are showing up intoxicated who aren't really interested in quitting, but just keep coming around intoxicated and causing a ruckus. We had someone do that as well. We had somebody that would just sit outside. He wouldn't go into the meetings. He'd be drunk the entire time and he'd be trying to start fights with people. And everybody was like, well, he deserves to be here. No, he fucking doesn't. The desire to stop drinking doesn't apply to someone who's just trying to be an asshole and hasn't reached that point. I'm sorry that he suffered. I'm sorry that he's still sick. But he's creating an unsafe space for other people who are interested in stopping. We don't sacrifice that for this one person who has no interest in it. We don't sacrifice it for men who want to be disrespectful to women and make them feel unsafe. We don't sacrifice it for women who try to apply some sort of religious doctrine on how people can dress or act or speak. Back back to the reading. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. 
That's true. That's the truth. Many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take, as a rule, one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certain family problems will arise. With these, we have had experience galore. Yeah, I mean, in the in the meetings, they call that the pink cloud. You know, it's, I think it's just common for anybody that finds some new thing that makes them feel amazing. I mean, it could it could apply to somebody who just found like a new diet or a new exercise program or just something that that just makes another person feel so good about themselves. They want to share that with the world. Now, imagine you're struggling with something like alcoholism and you find something that's that way. You're going to try to, you know, it, it's very, very common that people throw themselves into it completely headlong. We got to consider back and go back to that, that thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, habits should be small forming and they should take take slow progress to really be solidified and become habits. So, you know, be patient with folks that are like this. Don't try to tear them down, uh, but be prepared for the kind of eventual realization that uh, you can't live at that fucking extreme forever and people will experience some kind of burnout. This is why I don't like the 90 and 90 concept. I think it shames a lot of people who feel like that they just aren't capable of making 90 to 90. And I know the whole like, well, if you could drink every day, you can go to a meeting every day. That's not fucking practical for some people. And they shouldn't feel shamed for that. People should be able to be in charge of their own recovery. And if that means that they don't make 90 to 90, then that's fine. People that do make 90 to 90, great. Good for you. I'm glad that helped you in your recovery. Uh, but that's where it fucking stops. Don't, you know, please do not make other people feel like they have done something poorly in the beginning of their recovery by not doing 90 and 90. There aren't any real rules to this, despite what people might think. We think it dangerous if he rushes headlong at his economic problem. The family will be affected also, pleasantly at first, as they feel their money troubles are about to be solved, then not so pleasantly as they find themselves neglected. Dad may be tired at night and preoccupied by day. He may take small interest in the children and may show irritation when reproved for his delinquencies. If not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. Mother may complain of inattention. They are all disappointed and often let him feel it. Beginning with such complaints, a barrier arises. He is straining every nerve to make up for lost time. He is striving to recover fortune and reputation and feels he is doing very well. Again, this is so oddly and weirdly specific and it makes it sound like literally everybody is going to go through this and that's just not the case. Everybody has a different experience in recovery. The The important thing is, uh, is to kind of just gauge, now we're speaking to the family, right? Is to try to just gauge this out, like bring it to their attention. Hey, you know, we, we get it. You're doing great. We, we're really excited, uh, but we want to see you now. Like you're here, be here for us, like balance this out. Let's discover that balance together. Sometimes mother and children don't think so. Having been neglected and misused in the past, they think father owes them more than they are getting. They want him to make a fuss over them. They expect him to give them the nice times they used to have before he drank so much and to show his contribution for what they suffered. But dad doesn't give freely of himself. Resentment grows. He becomes still less communicative. Sometimes he explodes over a trifle. The family is mystified. They criticize, pointing out how he is falling down on his spiritual program. It's such a weird... I, God, this whole chapter uh, is getting odd. This sort of thing can be avoided. Both father and the family are mistaken, though each side may have some justification. It is of little use to argue and only make the impasse worse. 
The family just realized that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that his drinking wrought all kinds of damage that may take long to re repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. This 100% puts the entire burden on the family, and I don't approve of it. Like, I get giving them space to figure themselves out, but the family needs to be involved. They don't get to just go through hell with this person and then continue to live in this like fucking bubble of you know infinite fucking forgiveness and and patience with the man. In this instance, if I'm talking to the family, if your partner gets into a spiritual program or a whatever program and, and becomes sober and he starts like doing this where he's now still kind of being in some ways abusive and snapping at you and being kind of shitty, that you need to call that out. Like that needs to be a conversation and that needs to be worked through. That doesn't just need to be ignored and swept under the rug and like, ah, he's just figuring himself out. We just need to continue to be patient for him. No, it needs to be brought to his attention. It just needs to be done so in a healthy way. There are healthy ways to do this. You don't have to attack them and start making a big, like, get into counseling. Seriously, more people need to consider that as an option. If you break your fucking foot, you go to the doctor and then you go to rehab so that you can walk on it again. This is, You broke your brain. You need to go to counseling. And sometimes if you break your family, the whole family needs to do it. The head of the house ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell his home. He can scarcely square the account of his lifetime, but he must see the danger of over-concentration on financial success. Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never proceeded. I mean, if that's even true. I, I've not found financial well-being, but like I said before, I'm paying all my bills, my credit score is going up, I'm making small dents, progress not perfection for sure. My spending habits are slowly changing over time. And I know a lot of people like that. I put a lot of pressure my, at myself at first. You know, I'm of an age where I should have assets and I don't. But my happiness has been better than ever. And there's no reason for me to change that by feeling like I'm a financial failure, when that just really isn't how any of this works. Since the home has suffered more than anything else, it, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show usefulness and love under his own roof. We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism must remember he did much to make them so. Exactly, 100%. As each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admit to them the others, he lays a basis for helpful discussion. These family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticisms. Little by little, mother and children will see they ask too much, and father will see he gives too little, or whatever variable that is. Like, maybe. Maybe it's they ask too much. Or maybe... Yeah, whatever the actual dynamic it is, it's very, very healthy to have these discussions. Actually ask what they want and, and tell them what you want. Don't tell them where they're failing. Don't tell each other what's wrong. Ask each other what, what can be improved. Look at look for ways to increase the dynamic so that everybody's on board. And just, just do the work. That's all you really have to do. And if you're not able to sit down and have that discussion with each other, it doesn't mean the marriage has ended. It means you need to start actually considering counseling. I'll say that over and over again. Too many people are too stubborn about the idea that counseling can't possibly fix them when counseling is very, very helpful. You just got to find the right counselor and everybody's got to be committed to the process. Just, just kind of like how AA is. If you're committed to the process, it seems to improve people's lives. Giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle.
Assume, on the other hand, that Father has, at the outset, a stirring spiritual experience. Overnight, as it were, he is a different man. He becomes a religious enthusiast. He is unable to focus on anything else. As soon as his sobriety begins to be taken as a matter of course, the family may look at their strange new dad with apprehension, then with irritation. There is talk about spiritual matters morning, noon, and night. He may demand that the family find God in a hurry or exhibit amazing indifference to them or he say he is obvious above worldly considerations. He may tell mother, who has been religious all her life, that she doesn't know what it's all about and that she had better get his brand of spirituality while there is yet time. Again, so weirdly fucking specific. When father takes this tact, the family may reject unfavorably. They may be jealous of a god who has stolen dad's affections. While grateful that he drinks no more, they may not like the idea that god has accomplished the miracle and where they failed. They often forget father was beyond human aid. They may not see why their love and devotion did not straighten him out. Dad is not so spiritual after all, they say. If he means to do right his past wrongs, why all this concern for everyone in the world but his family? What about his talk that God will take care of them? They suspect father is a bit balmy. Now, this is true. It's a weird way of saying it. But I have seen people who, who aren't alcoholic, who have a partner that is, build a resentment because they feel like that the family dynamic should have been enough to keep them sober or other aspects should have been enough to keep them sober. And the idea that they have to find it in themselves and then give it to other people that aren't their family can be kind of harmful, but it is good to sit down and discuss that with them and explain to them why it has to be that it is for you, that that makes it true, that that means that there isn't anything in the world that can take that sobriety from you. That that will help, you know, explaining that part of the process, explaining that giving it to the next person and giving back to the world after having done all this harm is is a part of the process will we'll kind of help with that. It should. Not always. Some people have resentments, man. Some other people have issues they aren't willing to work through. And that's where this is also kind of speaking to. Just because you're willing to make these changes and start really making beneficial life altering adjustments to yourself doesn't mean your family's going to. And they're not always going to be receptive of it. Your kids may come around, right? Or they may not. You could be older and your kids could be grown and they could decide that there's nothing you could do. Or they're shitty people. I, I mean, that's just hard facts too. Just because you've gotten better doesn't mean other people will. And again, that's where it just keeps coming back to you got to do this for yourself without the expectation that other people are going to be receptive to it. He is not so unbalanced as they might think. Many of us have experienced dad's elation. We have indulged in spiritual intoxication like a gaunt prospector. Belt drawn in over the ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. Father feels he has struck something better than gold. For a time, he may try to hug the new tree a treasure to himself. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines for it uh, the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. If the family cooperates, Dad will soon see that he is suffering from a distortion of values. He will perceive that his spiritual growth is lopsided, that for an average man like himself, a spiritual life which does not include his family obligations may not be so perfect after all. And, I'm going to say again, there is nothing wrong with you not having a family. It just isn't. That doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to you, that you can't be fulfilled as a human because you don't have a wife and kids or you don't have a husband and kids. If the family will appreciate that dad's current behavior is but a phase of his development, all will be well. In the midst of an understanding and sympathetic family, these vagaries of dad's spiritual infancy will quickly disappear. 
The opposite may happen should the family condemn and criticize. Dad may feel that for years his drinking has placed him on the wrong side of every argument, but that now that he's become a superior person with God on his side. If the family persists in criticism, these fallacies may still may take still greater hold on father. Instead of treating the father as he should, he may retreat further into himself and feel he has spiritual justification for doing. I don't fucking know about that one. <laughs> I hope nobody's coming out of this feeling like they have some sort of superiority over others because they couldn't get their drinking under control and found a program of living that helps them do so. You should feel superior to the version of you that walked in the door and that's it. Though the family does not fully agree with dad's spiritual activities, they should let him have his head. Even if he displays a certain amount of neg neglect and irresponsibility towards the family, it is well to let him go as far as he like in helping other alcoholics. Nope, gonna say that's a no too. Because there are people that are as obsessive as me, and they will fully neglect the people around them as they go and they get hyper-focused on the next thing. And, and the family should be willing and capable of saying that's not okay. There needs to be balance. There has to be balance. 100% there has to be balance. It is not the family's burden to still allow the other person to cause that neglect. Like it, some of it is their responsibility if their sensitivities are higher than they should be, or maybe they're codependent or there's other things they need to work on. But if the man of the house or the person of the house, the woman of the house, whoever now has this new spiritual program and they're never home. Because they're always at the clubhouse, or they're always helping another drunk, or they're always at a meeting, or they're always out there and about doing all these things for everybody else, and they just aren't home, the family shouldn't just suck that up either. During those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. Though some of his manifestations are alarming and disagreeable, we think dad will be on a firmer foundation than the man who is placing business or professional success ahead of spiritual development. He will be less likely to drink again, and anything is preferable to that. There's no evidence to support this in any way. This is just a thing they said, I think. I don't know how they would have possibly measured something like this. That's okay. I get the message they're trying to say, and I hope you do as well. I mean, obviously, if you if you go 100% headlong, dive into uh, recovery, there's less chance that you're going to relapse than if you dive a thousand, you know, 100% into just making a bunch of money, and which leaves you less time for recovery by default. Either way, you're not you're harming your family. <laughs> If you're not giving your family any kind of balance, you're harming your family. Those, those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing uh, consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We have found nothing incom incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. One more suggestion. Whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles of which the alcoholic member is trying to live. They can hardly fail to approve these simple principles, though the head of the house still fails somewhat in practicing them. 
Nothing will help the man who is off on spiritual tangent so much as the wife who adopts a sane spiritual program, making a better practical use of it. I, okay, kind of, whatever. Basically, if the family joins in and also working on their own shit, then everybody benefits. You, you just can't be the one to decide what that is. You can't come home like, I'm cured, so now I'm going to make sure you're cured because you're going to do the same thing. That's not how that works either. There will be other profound changes in the household. Liquor incapacitated father for so many years that mother became head of the house. She met that these responsibilities gallantly. Who knows if that's true? It was so weird. By force of circumstances, she was often ob obliged to treat father as a sick or wayward child. Even when he wanted to assert himself, he could not, for his drinking placed him constantly in the wrong. Mother made all the plans and gave the directions. When sober, father usually obeyed. And this, this again, this is not a dynamic that I think is 100% accurate. Sometimes the, the significant other is so codependent that they just allowed whoever the alcoholic in the, in the household was to run the household. Or there's instances where maybe there's a single father or a single mother and the kid became the care, caregiver. And it's not addressing that at all. Because again, this was written in 1930 something. So I just, you know, a lot of this is just where people get stuck. Like, well, this doesn't apply to me at all. Okay, maybe not you, but it will apply to somebody and maybe it can be converted to apply to uh, similar circumstances that you have. You just have to look at the fact that the hundred people that they're referencing were all very similar to this story. Thus, mother, through no fault of her own, became accustomed to wearing the family trousers, which is fine. Again, equality wasn't really a solid thing back then, uh, and it is now. Anybody can wear the trousers and be the head of the household. Most households are completely split or might not even be split, but still kind of are. Like, I don't know. Father coming suddenly to life again often begins to assert himself. This means trouble unless the family watches for these tendencies in each other, comes to a friendly agreement about them. Drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Father may have laid aside for years all normal activities, clubs, civic duties, sports. When he renews interest in such things, a feeling of jealousy may arise. The family may feel they hold a mortgage on dad so big that no equality, no, no equity should be left for outsiders. Instead of developing new channels of activity for themselves, mother and father demand that he stay home and make up the deficiency. Again, I don't understand this family dynamic and how they're being so specific like this. At the very beginning, the, the couple ought to frankly face the fact that each will have to yield here and there if the family is going to play an effective part in the new life. They're just reiterating that they, you have to work through this as a unit. Father will necessarily spend much time with other alcoholics, but this activity should be balanced. New acquaintances who know nothing of alcoholism might be made and thoughtful considerations given their needs. The problems of the community might engage attention. Though the family has no religious connections, they may wish to make contact with or take membership in religious bodies. Alcoholics who have derided religious people will be helped by such contacts. Being possessed of a spiritual experience, the alcoholic will find he has much in common with these people, though he may differ with them on many matters. If he does not argue about a religion, he will make new friends and is sure to find new avenues and usefulness and pleasure. What? What a weird, I'm surprised I don't remember this line. That's not true at all. I will say that as we get further and further away from like a connected country, as we are like, we're so deep into just being split down the middle right now. Uh, you know, there's some things you just don't want to talk about or bring up. 
You know, I love my grandparents dearly. Uh, I love that they have the capability of making decisions on their own, even though for the most part, they're of a political party I don't necessarily agree with. But they, we find common ground and we don't talk about that. That's fine. Don't talk about it. This idea that like, as long as you fully accept religion, you shouldn't have any problems at all. Don't just don't argue about the religious stuff and people will come to you. Whatever. He and his family can be a bright spot in such congregation. He may bring new hope and new courage to many a priest, minister, or rabbi who gives his all to minister our troubled world. Then this is important, priest, minister, or rabbi, a, a congregation of multiple religious types. So yes, I stand by my previous statements that the Lord's Prayer is not inclusive in meetings. It just fucking isn't. They're making it clear even in the book. You might have somebody who goes to a rabbi. They don't want to hear the fucking Lord's Prayer, period. We intend the foregoing as helpful suggestion only. So far as we are concerned, there is nothing obligatory about it. As non-denominational people, we cannot make up others' minds for them. Each individual should consult his own conscience. Non-denominational. It's important. And more meetings need to get back to that. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We've been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect. But we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. That's a very, we are not a glum lot. I go to, uh, you know, events or used to before COVID kind of mucked a lot of that stuff up. There's a huge event out here that happens for the area meetings. It's this giant, we rent out an entire park, not like a city park. We rent out like a massive park um, and have a big barbecue with like prizes and games. And, you know, we just, it's a big fun time. It's a huge summer event. My first Christmas was was spent at a clubhouse. I it was my first Christmas sober, excuse me, because my family wasn't here. My grandparents were out of town at the time because they were snowbirds. They lived in Arizona. I didn't have any close family. I'm not really close with my uncles. My aunt lives in another state. So that's it. There wasn't really any family. I, at that time, hadn't really figured out who my friends were anymore. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was just fucking completely numb. Like four days before that, I had tried to kill myself five days before that. So my first Christmas sober was at a clubhouse, uh, an AA clubhouse. And it happens to be one in the area that's a little bit, well, I guess it'd be considered harder. It's, it's where a lot of the ex-cons go. A lot of the NA meetings are there as well, more than more than AA. But I felt immediately welcomed. I went there, I dressed up a little bit, I asked if I could help out, and I participated and laughed and had a great time and um, really just saw what the community was like, what community was like. I helped hand out presents to people, little kids that didn't have presents because they had a, a giving tree. So everybody that was, you know, a kid there got presents. They had a big dinner. I helped out with that. And there was just a lot of joy and happiness and peace there. Um, it, and that's what you'll find, man, if you look for it in these in these things. And that's what I keep encouraging people to find in AA. Maybe this isn't what you stick with. But while you're here, you know, check that stuff out. It's okay to have a good time even if you're recovering from something. It's okay to have fun even if you have a lot of, like, damage that you're overcoming. Things that you've done in your past. It's okay to laugh and be joyful. That isn't diminishing any of that. 
but it is helpful if you want to move through it and move past it. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to belief to the belief that his life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Fucking whatever. God's responsible for everything except for the parts that we just feel like he's not responsible for. But fucking ever. <laughs> Sorry. That's so annoying. Like... All the bad's our fault, but all the good's his fault, whatever. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if it, if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize uh, it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. Okay, so the part I will extract from that, avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. That 1000% I agree with. I was the developer of so much of my own misery, oftentimes because I didn't feel like I deserved happiness. And it would be something I would do almost subconsciously, just destroy things that were going well for me. A good relationship, a good job, a good friendship, healthy encounters with people. I would slowly over time find a way to destroy that. You know, just because that's just, that was just in my nature. It even was during sobriety. It still kind of is. It's something I always have to kind of check in on. If I'm not happy or if I feel stagnant or if I feel like I'm not doing enough or if I feel like I don't deserve it, I start to tear it down. I manufacture my own misery because I know how to respond to that. That's an old habit. Going back to the habit thing, my entire life was built on the idea that I overcome and survive misery. And so if there isn't any of that, then I feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing something right or I'm not, I'm not overcoming, overcoming those struggles, then I create them. Uh, and, and I know that I'm not alone in that, or at least there's a version of that in other people as well. So avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. And, and for those that are like, man, why do you read this book? You got so much to say, you know, against it at times, or you don't always agree with it, or you, you point out contradictions. It's stuff like that. The little gems that are hidden in here. Yeah, you could probably find this in fortune cookie style like self-help books, but this was written by people like us. This wasn't written by somebody that was just trying to make a dollar. Maybe some people were, okay? But this was written by people that just wanted to stop drinking. So these little nuggets came from their souls and their their bits and their inner selves, and they reflect me, and, they, and I can see myself in them, and I can see myself in that line right there. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. That's why I read this book, so... Anyways, now about health. A baddie bodily burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is a most powerful health restorative. We, who have recovered from serious drinking, are miracles of mental health. But we have seen remarkable, transforma remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. Okay, that may not be true. A lot of people end up gaining a lot of weight because they are now eating differently, and I did. My weight and my health has fluctuated all over the place. It is kind of a hand-to-hand -hand that if you're going to stop drinking, that some aspect of your health is just going to improve. You've been slamming a poison down your throat for years. Uh, but don't expect that suddenly you're going to be fit, healthy, and free from those kinds of things. There's still a lot of work. It takes work. You know, don't, don't feel like you're failing because you gained 20 pounds or something. That's not how that works either. It just might happen. Any changes like this are going to have those kinds of effects. But this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. 
Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. Most of them give freely of themselves, that their fellows may enjoy some minds and bodies, sound minds and bodies, excuse me. Try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, we should never belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. Their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and in following his case afterward. One of the many doctors who has had the opportunity of reading this book in manuscript form told us that the use of sweets has often helped, of course, depending uh, upon a doctor's advice. He thought all alcoholics should blatantly or should constantly have chocolate available for its quick energy value at the time of fatigue. <laughs> Little would he know, right, that it would be coffee, that everybody would just start drinking copious amounts of coffee. He added that occasionally in the night a vague craving arose which would be satisfied by candy. Many of us have noticed a tendency to eat sweets and have found this practice beneficial. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you're basically eating a fucking variation. You're just eating carbs. You're just drinking carbs, you know. Of course your body's going to crave carbs when you quit drinking. Try to – man, I ate so many little fucking quarter pints and half pints of ice cream. It was just a daily routine of mine. I'd get home from my meeting after stopping by Safeway on my way home with a little half pint, a little, you know, circle half pint of, of some kind of ice cream. And I'd fucking devour that watching some show. And, uh, you know, that was a habit I had to break. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I, I can deal with this being something, I, I, a negative habit that I've, uh, I'm using to compensate for the copious amounts of alcohol I was consuming. A word about sex relations. Alcohol is so sexually stimulating to some men that they have overindulged. Couples are occasionally dismayed to find that when drinking is stopped, the man tends to be impotent. Unless the reason is understood, there may be an emotional upset. Some of us had had this experience only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever. Than ever. Now, I have heard people say that the first time they had sex in sobriety that it was really awkward and weird and kind of hard because, you know, the alcohol helps you overcome a lot of insecurities. And so maybe those insecurities are still there. Give yourself some patience with that. Like don't immediately think that sex is going to be fine with your partner or whoever. It's going to be awkward and weird if you've not really remember the last time you've had sober sex. Uh, so that's, you know, that's just going to be coming. It's going to come with the the deal, man. There should be no hesitancy in consulting a doctor or psychologist if the condition persists. We do not know of many cases where this difficulty lasted long. The alcoholic may find it hard to reestablish friendly relations with his children. Their young minds were impressionable while he was drinking. Without saying so, they may cordially hate him for what he has done to them and to their mother. The children are sometimes dominated by a pathetic hardness and cynicism. What the fuck kind of language is this to describe a kid who's been through emotional and potentially physical abuse? Yeah, your kids are going to have a tough time just kind of coming around. Or maybe not. Some kids just decide that they're going to forgive the people around them. Kids are kids, man. They're just weird, honestly. They cannot seem to forgive and forget. This may hang on for months, long after their mother has accepted dad's new way of living and thinking. In time, they will see that he is a new man, and in their own way, they will let him know it. When this happens, they can be invited to join in morning meditation, and then they can take part in the daily discussion without rancor or bias. Or you can just accept them for who they are as well and treat them with respect. From that point on, progress will be uh, rapid. Marvelous results often follow such a reunion. And this is a promise I don't think that they should be making in this book, but whatever. Whether the family goes on a spiritual basis or not, the alcoholic member has to if he would recover. The others must be convinced of his new status beyond the shadow of a doubt. Seeing is believing to most families who have lived with a drinker. It might take forever to read. It might just, you just have to, gonna have to work real hard at convincing and just not be motivated by that. Here is a case in point. One of our friends is a heavy smoker and coffee drinker. There was no doubt he overindulged. 
seeing this and meaning to be helpful, his wife commenced to admonish him about it. If your wife or significant other feels that they're trying to be helpful and then they admonish you, that's not being helpful and that's not a healthy dynamic and that's what should be addressed. Uh, he admitted he was overdosing these things, but frankly said that he was not ready to stop. His wife is one of those persons who really feels there is something rather sinful about these commodities. So she nagged and her intolerance finally threw him into a fit of anger. He got drunk. What? <laughs> uh, of course our friend was wrong dead. Of course our friend was wrong. Dead wrong. He had to painfully admit that and mend his spiritual offenses. Though he is now a most effective member of Alcoholics Anonymous, he still smokes and drinks coffee, but neither his wife nor anyone else stands in judgment. She sees she was wrong to make a burning issue out of such a matter when his more serious ailments were being rapidly cured. I mean, keep fucking maybe. Like, if you're still sucking down a giant tub of, of soda and it's slowly killing you, and maybe that increased because you quit drinking, that should be considered and looked at. If you're now drinking, like, a whole pot of coffee a night every single night before bed and it's affecting your ability to sleep, then that should also be considered. Yeah, I... I, you know, ate a pint of ice cream or half pint of ice cream every night when I was coming home from a meeting for the first couple of weeks, there wasn't anything wrong with that. Then I started getting fat and it made me feel a little self-conscious. And the fact that I was working so hard on my health beforehand while drinking, I should have been capable of doing that while I was sober. I made adjustments. I still have a pint of ice cream every now and then, or a half pint or whatever those little things are called. I still enjoy those things and those indulgences are fine. But I made those adjustments based on my own needs. If I had been living with a significant other who, after everything, was kind of coming around to who I was as a person, and they were like, you know, you should really stop eating those half pints of ice cream because it's really affecting you, that might be a problem. But I should also be open to the possibility that maybe they're right. And that should just be a discussion. I, this is kind of a weird dynamic that they're having here and again it's this 1930s shit like this the naggy wife and the in the strong husband or whatever the fucking weird thing is that they're trying to describe here your partner coming to you and saying i'm worried about your health because you're drinking too much caffeine is reasonable that's what your partner should be doing you should be doing the same sometimes you need to check in with your partner and see how they feel about certain things that maybe they don't see if you're going to get drunk over that man then you're going to get drunk over anything that's the sensitivity that we all need to work on. I need to be capable of hearing my partner say that they're worried about my fucking health. Like, of course. We have three little mottos, which are apropos. Here they are. First things first, live and let live. Easy does it. That's the end of that chapter. That is, I am going to be honest, not my favorite chapter. There was a lot of just weird stuff in there that I don't agree with, and that was per probably pretty honest to folks that are listening. But I might not be the only one. Maybe other people didn't agree with it. Maybe they think I was a little too hard on some of that. If that's the case, reach out to me. You can find me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. There's both a page where I post my episodes regularly, but there's not a lot of like engagement. And there's a group where I'm hoping that people will go and start posting their own things and we can start having discussions. You can also reach out to me at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter at anatheistin. And you can find me on Instagram at atheist underscore in underscore aa. I really hope that I get an opportunity to hear some folks, uh, you know, share what they thought about this chapter or others. Um, the feedback I have gotten has been amazing so far. I really appreciate everybody being who has been willing to uh to reach out to me and just let me know how this has affected them and you know i really enjoy that others are still listening i see that there's not really been 
any loss in you know listeners for the most part this isn't you know this isn't an attempt for me to get some kind of famous this is just me trying to share my truth about these matters with other people and the fact that it's reaching some folks and that they're getting something positive out of it uh, is all I've ever wanted. So I appreciate everybody keeping me sober today. If you can share this with somebody, I would be uh, internally grateful. It, it, my hope is that this reaches more people. Um, I'm not great at the promotion of this kind of stuff. I feel kind of, you know, I did one really quick, like $15 ad when it first was going to launch. And I think some people came from that, uh, but I also got a lot of negativity for that. So I'm not sure that that's the approach I want to make. I might try that again. Uh, but if I can have this be more of a word of mouth, get it into the hands of people that actually want it, then I'd be really grateful for that. So I'm going to try to get some guests on soon. That's still a goal. Uh, we're almost to the end of the first 164 pages. And I think that's when that's going to happen. And I'm going to, you know, hopefully be guest spotting on some more podcasts in the future and hopefully get some more folks involved. While I do enjoy that people are listening, the biggest goal is to create a community of folks and create a space for them to discuss this stuff. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm at. That's where things are going. Um, again, I appreciate everybody, uh, keeping me sober one more day until next time.